I'm Crystal Siracus. Welcome to Off the Page, the show featuring good books and good conversations with authors from our own region and from around the world. My guest today is Kate Hartfield. She's written several books, including the Aurora award-winning novel Armed in Her Fashion and recently Assassin's Creed The Magus Conspiracy. Her historical fantasy, The Embroidered Book, is a wonderfully immersive take on the story of Marie Antoinette and her sister Maria Caroline, Queen of Naples. Imagine all of the political upheaval and social change of the Age of Enlightenment and then add magic, and you'll have an idea of what this book is about. Kate joins me today from her home in Ottawa, Canada. Kate, thanks so much for being here. Thank you. I'm so happy to be here. So your book is called The Embroidered Book, and if I had to sum it up in a super short description, it's a historical fantasy in which Marie Antoinette and Marie Carolina, also known as Charlotte, do magic, and there's the Age of Enlightenment, and things happen as a result. I'm curious, what was it about this period in history that was fascinating enough for you to write this beautifully giant book about? Yeah, I I do seem to be attracted to moments of change, I think. Um, and which is a funny thing to say, because, you know, change is happening every day in, in history and, and now. So um, it's a little bit artificial to divide particular eras and, and single them out as moments of change. But you know, there's something particularly dramatic about the second half of the 18th century and uh, the Enlightenment and, um, and of course, the French Revolution, which figures quite largely in this novel. Uh, so, you know, there were these big ideas. I have a political science degree, so I've always been attracted to big political ideas and the questions of how we got to where we are today and, and why do countries look the way that they do and um and even just the history of gender roles and politics and and um, sort of asking questions about all of that. So those were some of the things that attracted me to the end of the 19th century, or sorry, the end of the 18th century. And uh, I think I also thought it was an interesting time to develop a, a fantasy novel based on magic because there was this interest in science and all this exciting new science and uh, that um, paradox of having a magic system at that time seemed really interesting to me. And and in this magic system, there is, in the book, there is the embroidered book, which is the book of spells that Antoinette and Charlotte find. They teach themselves magic, which of course has a lot of consequences. But I'm always interested with the process that writers go through in creating magic systems. Can you talk a little bit about what that was like for you? Yeah, uh, the magic system was tricky, but so much fun and so interesting. Uh, so in this book, the magic comes from sacrifice, uh, which is you know not a new idea that that happens in a lot of magic systems. Um, partly because, just for plot reasons, it is helpful to have some sort of cost to magic, so that your characters can't do whatever they want, uh, because then there would be almost no story because uh, they could just make the world they would they wanted it. Um, so I did have to think about you know what would be the cost and the sacrifice of magic for these characters. And I wanted that to have some thematic resonance and be a metaphor in some way. So the things that they sacrifice um, are what they are also sacrificing at a, a deeper level in a lot of senses, uh, things like love, memory, hope. Um, and the way that these women change themselves 
uh, in the pursuit of power, in the pursuit of what they think will be the greater good, um, often misguidedly, but uh, that's their belief. And so each of these women, Charlotte uh, in Naples and Antoinette in France, they're very interested in being a good queen in the way that they have conceptualized that. And they use magic to that end and they sacrifice pieces of themselves uh, to get there. And, uh, but the price is not just theirs to pay, of course, uh, it's it's the peoples around them as well. And so uh, I definitely did not want to let them off the hook for that. So the, the way the magic system affects the world and the choices that leaders make and the sacrifices they make on behalf of the people is something I also wanted uh, to get into. And there's a little bit of a, uh, a medieval feel to the magic as well, because I wanted this to be a magic system that reflected the Enlightenment and that it would be very mathematical and systematized and people would have all sorts of theories about it. Uh, but I also wanted it to feel like it had been around for a while. And, uh, you know, so there's a sort of Faustian uh, aesthetic to it and there's a star on the floor and, and uh, you know, words that you say and, and all of that. And uh, so I thought that would be a bit familiar to readers as well. I think one of the things that I find so fascinating is, so we talk about these sacrifices, which, you know, I'm not going to talk too much about what's in the book because I don't want to spoil it for people, but a couple of minor things, you know, sacrificing uh, the love for a pet or even the love of a particular moment or for a sibling or a memory of that. And what's so amazing to me is this book is meticulously researched in terms of what happened in that period in history that we know of. But these little sacrifices, these little spells, it's almost like a nudge and it removes this thread, which leads to this different thing. What was that like for you taking history and then figuring out in the course of plotting this book, the way the magic was going to make that history unfold, that it might have been different if they didn't have this magic? It's a fun challenge for me to try to fit uh, a sort of secret history in the gaps between known history, which this book does, and and I've done um, some of my work, uh, other work as well, uh, to ask, okay, well, what might have been happening in the rooms that that we couldn't see? Um, and sometimes, uh, if you're a historical fantasy writer, the answer can be magic. Um, so yeah, it was often a challenge to come up with, you know, the the sort of secret reasons behind something. But in a way, one of the things I like about historical fantasy is that often those reasons are less bizarre than the real reasons or, you know, they're an explanation for something that we have no explanation for. And so it almost in a way puts the spotlight on how strange and how unknown so many of these episodes are. So one example of this for me, uh, and I won't spoil what happens in the book, but uh there is this episode in the life of Marie Antoinette uh, called the Diamond Necklace Affair, a quite infamous episode. And uh, it was sort of the beginning of the end for her popularity, that there was this diamond necklace that um, uh, these jewelers wanted to sell and they, they couldn't sell because times had changed and nobody wanted to spend massive amounts of money on this necklace. They were trying to sell it to Marie Antoinette and, and she was refusing. And there was this very strange convoluted conspiracy to get her to buy the necklace anyway and there was a con woman involved and and some various uh layers to this 
And there are, you know, lots of things that we know about it, but there are just parts of it that don't make any sense. And the way that the public reacted to it didn't really make any sense because she was absolutely not guilty of anything. And yet it destroyed her popularity just being involved in this at all. And there were people on the outskirts of it, like the the, the sort of famous quack uh, Cagliostro, who was there at the time and he was arrested. But what his role was um, is not really something that we understand very well. Um, so there were all these gaps and blank spaces in the history. Um, and so filling those in uh, somewhat paradoxically always makes me feel like I'm exposing those gaps in some way. Uh, you know, the example I always think about from someone else's work is the wonderful novel Jonathan Strange and Mr. Norrell by uh, Susanna Clark, uh, in which she does a, something similar where the strange things that happened in history, she comes up with other explanations for like, it's not just that an army got lost on the way to the battle and never showed up. What happened is that a magician moved all the roads around and which of those is the weirder explanation, you know? So that's one of my favorite things about historical fantasy in general. Oh, I love that too. I also want to talk about, um, so Antoinette and Charlotte are two very strong women at a time when there were actually a number of women in very powerful positions throughout Europe. We all know, or actually we think we know Marie Antoinette, but very few people remember Maria Caroline, um, Queen of Naples, also known as Charlotte, or even her mother, Maria Theresa, who was actually the king of Hungary for 40 years. So yeah. why don't they have the same prominent role in history that Marie Antoinette has? Yeah, that's such an interesting question. And that was one of the big questions in the back of my mind writing this book. Because 18th century Europe does have these incredible characters um, you know, another two big looming figures in that century in Russia, the Empress Elizabeth and the Empress Catherine the Great, of course, uh, who I barely even mention in the book because, you know, it's already 650 pages. So there's only, only so much I could do. <laughs> but, you know, and there are other other examples of very, very powerful women in Europe uh, in that century. Um, but we do tend to think of each of them as being an outlier in a sense, you know, that yeah. Uh, uh, it, it's interesting the way that uh, despite this pattern of women being powerful, you know, certain kinds of very white, wealthy women, very privileged women, of course. Um, but even so, there there is a pattern and um, and I think it's it's somewhat erased and somewhat, um, you know, diminished in the history that at least I read growing up. So I was really interested in that. Um, and Maria Theresa, Charlotte, and Antoinette represent three different pathways to power in the book for women. So Antoinette um, wants to be good. She wants to be loved. She wants to be the perfect woman, the perfect wife, the perfect mother. And, uh, you know, of course, the, the tragedy of her life is the more that she tries to do that, uh, the more she sort of digs her own grave, in a sense, uh, you know, she goes to France, and she's considered very dowdy and provincial. And so she says, all right, I'm going to remake myself, and I'm going to be a fashion plate, and I'm going to be as brilliant a queen, like, just like the Sun King was, just like Louis Fourteenth was, I'm going to be that kind of monarch, and then everyone will love me. And of course, she does that. And uh, just as France is going into debt, and it has kind of the opposite effect, and Charlotte in Naples um, had a different ambition. She was very politically minded, uh, a philosopher and interested in sciences and the arts and a patron of sciences and the arts. And she really wanted to build, you know, the shining city on the hill. She wanted to build a utopia. And she 
could do that in a sense because her husband was a non-entity. He was just not interested in being king at all. So she had free reign uh, for the most part when she established herself there. And uh, and she ruled in much the same way that her mother did through her children. She had a lot of children and arranged marriages for them. And, and uh, you know, the tragedy of her life is that she, um, despite the fact that she wanted to uh, create freedom in the world and, and liberty and a, a new golden age, she actually became a tyrant and uh, ran a police state by the end of her life. Um, and Maria Teresa, their mother, you know, this figure that looms throughout the whole book, um, you know, she she was, she ruled as a king in Hungary and she ruled as empress, uh, Holy Roman Empress, even though she couldn't be empress in name, her husband had to be. And she also ruled through her children and, and she tried to be the perfect Catholic mother, the perfect maternal figure for her country. Um, which also turned her into a, a different kind of tyrant. So, um, yeah, it's it's not a happy story uh, for uh, for any of them in many ways. Um, but I was really interested in how each of them thought, okay, well, how you know, being a woman in this world, how can I wield power? And it's always a different answer than it would be for a man. I was also fascinated by, you know, if we're looking at this from a social policy angle, if we're getting into the politics, that these women were very progressive in as much as they could be in that time and in the roles that they had. And I don't think that that's something that, unless you're a historian, you really understand. Yeah, definitely. Uh, it's such a complicated and nuanced thing because, you know, to be progressive in uh, the, the late 18th century often meant a sort of um, what they call enlightened absolutism, you know, which uh, Charlotte was uh, an example of, and her brother Joseph, the emperor, was probably the most famous example of this model. Uh, because the idea that democracy, you know, democracy was was feared as being mob rule and chaos, and uh, so how could you, um, how could you bring freedom to the people? Well, it had to be through a benevolent monarch who uh, was ruled by a constitution and was ruled by um, philosophy the sort of philosopher king model of governance. Um, and so that was really, for Charlotte especially, that was her idea of what it meant to be progressive. And of course, it uh, it doesn't look that progressive to us today in many ways, uh, but I was interested in getting into that and seeing the world through their eyes a little bit. Um, again, not to completely let them off the hook for many of their crimes, but to see where they were coming from, because I think it is a really interesting an important piece of our own history to understand how we got to where we are today. It's also an examination of how, even with the best of intentions, power does corrupt. And yeah, people make mistakes. And and for women of this power, those mistakes have such huge repercussions. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And that, I think, is something that readers, um, I hope, will will see some parallels today. Um, uh, it's I often joke about the fact that I I started writing this book um, a few months into 2016 when, of course, as we all know, Hillary Clinton was about to become president. So, you know, at the time that seemed, you know, it was it seemed a foregone conclusion that that was going to be what was going to happen, that, that we would have the first female president. And so I was really interested in um, how women at the top uh, wield power and what the consequences of mistakes are for women uh, and how they differ from the consequences for men and, and what the sorts of mistakes are that women make in their personal and, and professional and political lives. Um, and of course, then it became very interesting to see uh, what happened with that presidential campaign. And 
so I do see a lot of parallels between um, powerful women today and the kinds of decisions that they make and the way that politics can go for them and the, uh, the sort of similar stories that happened in the 18th century. Of course, there are a lot of differences, but I was really conscious of those parallels when I was writing. Mm. You know, there's a lot that we think we know about Marie Antoinette in particular that just isn't true. So a couple of questions. What do you think is the most misunderstood thing about her? And did you want to try to correct some of these misconceptions in the book? Yeah, I think the most misunderstood thing is the idea that she didn't care at all about the welfare of the people. And in fact, it was quite the opposite. Um, so that was pretty much propaganda that developed even before the revolution. Um, she had a lot of enemies for various political reasons because uh, there were people in the court at Versailles who were not, um, didn't trust Austria, for example. And so they didn't like her because she came from Austria. So she had enemies her whole life. And especially once the revolution got going, of course, uh, for good reason, she had enemies. And so there was a lot of propaganda at the time, and a lot of that has come down to us as fact. Uh, so, of course, the most famous thing being that she never said, let them eat cake, um, and she would never would have said that. It's not only that we have no evidence of her saying that, but it would just be completely out of character for her to have said that because we have many examples of her, her soft heart and her trying to go out and help the people, and she would give uh, money and she would you know she would give charity and she had special uh, organizations that she was very fond of such as nursing mothers for example and she adopted a whole bunch of children who didn't have parents and it, of course it's a, sort of a clueless um, rich lady way of going about things uh, absolutely and, and did no lasting good to her people but uh, but the idea that she was hard-hearted um, is, is just made out of a out of whole cloth. Uh, so I did, you know, that wasn't my main project in the novel. I didn't set out to kind of rehabilitate Marie Antoinette, but I was really conscious of it all the way along that, um, you know, part of the reason that the novel's called The Embroidered Book uh, is that I wanted readers to be thinking about the way that history is embroidered and the way that it's, the threads are pulled out and it's re-embroidered and it's always an evolving story. And the story that we think we know um, is, is just that. It's a story. Hmm. I mean, we've been talking about this book in kind of like the epic scale of it, the politics, all of the people, but the heart and soul of the book is this relationship between sisters, between Antoinette and Charlotte. They're very close in age in a very large family. Um, I think each of them were pawns in their mother's political gamesmanship. And I'm just curious because because that bond is so close, is so strong, and then things happen. Mm -hmm. Is that something that you really wanted to keep to write to keep you grounded outside of just the political structures that you were writing about? Yeah, for sure. That's the heart of the book. I think the emotional heart is this relationship between the two sisters, uh, and uh, yeah, I think it does keep keep it grounded so that it's not just a political or historical treatise uh it is a story um i think my editor at one point said you know this is a love story and it's mm -hmm. it's not even though there are some romances in the book it's it's not a romantic love story it's a, it's a love story about two sisters and their life together from when they're quite young um uh, right up to the end and uh that was something that was really important to me the book is dedicated to my own sister 
And uh, I, you know, I think that's a relationship that we could see more of in fiction. It's such a complicated and nuanced one. Um, and at the same time, I was also really conscious of working within or maybe on the edges of uh, a trope in fantasy, which is the the rival wizards, the rival magicians, you know, from Sarah Mann and Gandalf to Jonathan Strange and Mr. Norrell, um, you know, frequently they're men. And, uh, you know, so I wanted to think about how that trope would apply when you had sisters and uh, just a different relationship. So that was just something that I was interested in. As I mentioned in the book, their relationship gets complicated um, without, you know, spoiling any of the fun parts for anybody. Was their relationship complicated in real life as well? Yeah, it was. Um, it They didn't see each other in real life uh, since they were teenagers. You know, they got sent off, each of them to marry a man they'd never met. In fact, they were proxy married before they even left Austria. Um, so they were, they were very much male order and... Um, had no choice in the matter so and they were teenagers they were quite young teenagers uh when they were sent away so they didn't see each other again their entire lives um Marie Antoinette did not travel outside of France it was not something that the royal family did and um you know one of the the sad things about this book is that if one of them had made a lesser marriage they might have been able to uh, carry on seeing each other uh, but because they were both so important in their marriages they just couldn't uh, so despite that, um, they did, they were close through their entire lives. Uh, they wrote letters to each other. Um, and uh, Marie Antoinette was also close with a number of her other siblings. But Charlotte, uh, she always had this special relationship right up until the end of her life. And uh, the one of the things that first interested me in exploring that relationship was uh, the depiction of their relationship as children in Antonia Fraser's biography of Marie Antoinette. It's called Marie Antoinette, The Journey. And uh, there's a line in the book about how when they were children, uh, the two of them kept getting into trouble and they had to be separated. And uh, I just loved that image of these archduchesses getting into some unspecified trouble and having to be separated uh, in different quarters in the palace uh, in Vienna. Um, and so that immediately made me think, well, I wonder what they're getting up to. And, uh, that's uh. when I started to spin out that thread. <laughs> so the number of characters in this book, it's what what I what I affectionately call a cast of thousands kind of book, which is one of my favorite <laughs> yeah. things to read. Was there anyone else who was perhaps a background character that you might be tempted to write a book about? Yeah, I don't have any plans to uh, to bring any of the other characters out into their own book but you know never say never uh, and there were certainly many characters who I felt could have easily carried their own book um, again if I'd had infinite pages uh, so there's another of the sisters you know that the Maria Theresa had many children but the other sister that um, Marie Antoinette was very close to was her sister Amalia who went to Parma and she is another fascinating figure. Um, you know, she wore men's clothes and she, like Charlotte, she ran the state. Um, she completely overtook her husband and just ran things. And um, and she also was the only one of the children to defy Maria Theresa. She just did not do what her mother wanted her to do. Um, so I have some, you know, in the back of my mind, I was always thinking, I wonder what Amalia is up to at this point. But uh, I just couldn't. Uh, she's just a really minor character because I couldn't uh, work her in without expanding the book even more um, and right, there are other right. characters that just uh you know um they're just 
bigger than life. The Chevalier uh, Dayan um, is one of them. And um, the Chevalier de Saint-Georges, who was this wonderful composer slash swordsman. Um, you know, I just, the, the challenge was in not having too many characters because, uh, you know, the court at Versailles and the court at Naples were were peopled with these incredible figures at that time. And if I remember this correctly, there's only one person in this book that is entirely fictional. Yes. Yeah. Uh, everyone in the book is real. Some of them have more artistic license than others. There are a couple of characters, especially in Naples, uh, who we don't know a lot about. And so um, a lot of their lives uh, in the book is is my invention. Um, but most of the characters, I, I didn't contradict any real history. I didn't, you know, if, if there's something I invented, I invented it inside a gap uh, that we don't know about. Um, and uh, yeah, the only character who's completely invented, uh, it's not a spoiler, uh, right at the beginning of the book, we learned that these sisters once had a governess um, named Countess Ertag, and she is my own invention. Um, but she's dead when the book begins. So we're almost out of time, but I do want to talk about, you have a new book coming out this spring, The Valkyrie, which I am so excited about because I love Norse history. So can you tell us about that? Yeah, I'm really excited about this book. Um, the Valkyrie is, it's a retelling of a cycle of Norse and Germanic myths. Uh, so in the Norse version, it's uh, the Song of the Volsungs or the Volsunga Saga and parts of the Poetic Edda are the main sources uh, for that. Um, and the same characters and roughly the same storylines appear in Germanic sagas, um, particularly a big one called the Nibelungenlied. And it's probably most famous by being adapted by Wagner in his operas. And it's come down to us in many different forms, uh, including Bugs Bunny cartoons when I was a kid. <laughs> so <laughs> it's this, the story of, uh, of Brunhild and Sigurd and Gudrun, or as she's sometimes called, Kriemhild. And it's uh, it's also the story, you know, that inspired Tolkien to write um, about a dragon and, um, you know, very old stories. So uh, I... I sort of took all of these stories, all of the versions and put them into a pot and came out with my own retelling, my own offering to this tradition, um, which is a love story between the two women at the heart of it who are often depicted as rivals, uh, uh, Brunhild and Gudrun. And one of them is a fallen Valkyrie who's been exiled um, from Valhalla for telling off her boss, who is Odin. And uh, that was something I also felt that modern women could uh, relate to. <laughs> I certainly could. <laughs> so um, I think there are parallels there. And and Gudrun is a, a princess uh, who is trying to save the Burgundian kingdom at the edges of the Roman Empire. Because even though this was a story told by what we consider to be the Vikings, uh, even for them, it was historical fiction at the time. So it takes place several hundred years before that era. Um, so yeah, the Valkyrie is coming out uh, uh, in the spring and in the summer in North America. Well, I can't wait to read it, and I hope you'll come back on the show to talk about it. Definitely. Kate, thank you so much for talking with me today. This has been great. Thank you. I've really enjoyed it. Kate Hartfield's novel, The Embroidered Book, is available now. Find out more about this and her other works on her website at katehartfield.com. Coming up next week, I talk with science writer Leela Phillip about her new book, Beaverland, How One Weird Rodent Made America. 
It's part natural history, part business history, and part ecological history. It also looks towards the future. Science Friday made Beaverland its Sci-Fi Book Club pick for January. I hope you'll join me for what promises to be a fascinating conversation. Off the Page is a production of WSKG Public Media. I'm your host and producer, Crystal Siracus. Thanks so much for listening, and I hope you'll join me next time we go Off the Page. <laughs>